I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Marianne Leone met Chris Cooper in an acting class in New York City. I was in my 20s, and I was running an acting class, getting it free, because I was studying with Wynne Hanman, who just died recently of COVID at 98. He was someone who studied with Sanford Meisner from the Neighborhood Playhouse, and he was a trove of knowledge and a kind and an empathetic teacher, and we all adored him, and everything he said meant a lot to us. The day I met Chris, he was brought into class by the mid-level teacher who said he is starting tonight. And I said, "Um, no, he isn't. I have a list and it's six months long and he's not starting. And he started that night. He gave a monologue and afterwards Wynne said to me, does that guy know how good he is? And then I was extremely jealous and hating him for a while. He never came out for a drink with us afterwards. He would always waft off into the night like a noir film. (laughs) From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Today's episode is about how a couple gets through it over the years. And by it... I mean the highs and the lows, especially the lows, the kind that no couple ever plans on. It's a story about two people who give me hope that we can find good partners who truly see us, who can balance us and love us as we are. I think of Marianne Leone Cooper as a writer first. I'm a big fan of her memoirs and essays. But she is known to many as an actress, particularly as Christopher Maltesanti's mother, on The Sopranos. Marianne's husband is Chris Cooper, an actor you may know from his Oscar-winning performance in Adaptation, or maybe from American Beauty, or The Born Identity. Last year, he absolutely wrecked me as Mr. Lawrence in Greta Gerwig's Little Women. To say that Marianne and Chris are my version of hashtag marriage goals is an understatement. I have not spent much time with them, But when I've had the pleasure of seeing them, I get starstruck for their marriage. They have the energy of two people who get each other. But I knew from Marianne's books and essays that they've also overcome tremendous trials. I wanted to understand how they've done it, and if there's a secret to supporting each other when things are really hard. Their origin story begins back in that acting class in 1970s New York City, where Chris blows everyone away with his monologue— To Marianne, this new guy is a bit of a mystery, but she gets to know him more when their acting teacher pairs them for a scene. He put us together and he gave us Morning Becomes Electra. He gave us a scene about incest. So we were in our 20s and we were crazed and we met over and over again in coffee shops and just told each other our life stories and went on and on. But I noticed that he gave money to homeless people and was kind. And I was filing all this stuff away as I was working with him. (music) 
I wanted to hang out with him, but he was, I realized that he was incredibly shy. He wasn't, I, I don't know how to explain this, but acting class in your 20s, it, it was musical beds. And um, there was nothing coming my way from Chris, and I had a gay roommate at the time. And I remember saying, I, are you getting any gay vibes from this guy? Because not making any moves. He was like, I'm not getting gay vibes. I was like, okay, but <laughs> maybe he's just not attracted. Then finally, it was like a February night. It was freezing cold. I was in a six-floor walk-up, really dismal-looking apartment. We had just been to see, oh, God, I can't remember the name of this play. It was that play about the two gay men in a concentration camp, really romantic. It was cold, really cold, and it was really late. And I said, um, I'm not going home tonight. And he said, let's go. <laughs> and here's, it was, we were... We were actually, what stopped everything was the fact that, you know, normally when you're hanging out with someone that you have designs on, you can kind of like, I don't know, you maybe get high, you have a drink, whatever, you're relaxing on the bed, you fall back, things occur. Chris had a loft bed. You had to make a real commitment. You had to <laughs> climb the stairs. So <laughs> that put a big damper on things moving along. I said to him, what took you so long? And he said in his very cute Midwestern accent, scared. <laughs> Just one word, scared. scared. <laughs> so from the moment you made the loft commitment to climb up that loft, we're going to go for it. That's now, now like the euphemism. I'm going to go up. The, I'm going to go up into the loft. Um, at that point, did you feel like, oh, we are in a relation like this is a thing? I had been in a few relationships, so I was like wary. Let's just say I was a little wary. You know, God knows we came from extremely different backgrounds. He met my friends and there was approval on both sides. So that was great. But it was the meeting of the families. That's when it started getting intense, right? He comes to my house and it's like, it's crazy Italian Christmas Eve with millions of people, millions of courses. My uncles take him to a crap game during the day, an illegal crap game. And Chris finds the loaded dice. My mother adored him instantly because he ate everything she put in front of him. So she loved him. My Uncle Benny loved him because he found the loaded dice. And also, remember, they had given up hope that I would ever meet someone because I was too loudmouthed. I was too blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I didn't dress right. Tell me about meeting his family. Oh, God. Okay, so that was Christmas at in Kansas City, Missouri. His folks went to the Country Club Christian Church. That was really the name of it. Like, you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, this is why I write nonfiction mostly. You know, it was so not what I'm used to. It was like rich white people in fur coats. And anyway, the food was missing. <laughs> it was just missing. <laughs> just missing. <laughs> lived in a house that looked like a national monument, too, as opposed to our little arts and crafts house. It was like when we drove up, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Are you kidding me? It had pillars. It had pillars. Marianne and Chris move in together. They're in their mid-20s, living in Chris's six-floor walk-up. After a few years, Marianne is in her early 30s, and it falls to her again to make the first move. I was like, uh, I think we should get married. <laughs> And 
he agreed. I was like, but I don't want any big wedding or anything. And we really laid our cards on, you know, he was like, uh, uh, you know, my career is really important to me. And I was like, yeah, my career is really important to me too. So it was all that stuff throw down, you know what I mean? All that throw down happened before any kind of agreement. But then we both agreed. Yeah, this is cool. We both, you know, we both want to be actors. And then we decided we didn't want to have a big deal when we got married. So we kind of spoofed it. You know what I mean? We invited like, I think, four friends. And I laughed during the ceremony. Chris actually had tears in his eyes. He was moved by it. I was I was laughing because the whoever she was, immediately sounded like a bad actor. When she went from sounding like a normal person to Chris, Marianne, it was this fakey, it just cracked me up. Our friends got us a limo, which drove us to the airport. We landed in Boston, rented a car, and drove down the Cape for our honeymoon. And we went to, we went to the crow's nest in Truro. And it was 1983, so it was the beginning of the um, AIDS crisis, unfortunately. And Provincetown was completely empty. What I remember is, I mean, this is how old I am. I actually wrote to the Chamber of Commerce. There's no internet to find out, like, where should we stay? The marriage progresses. Marion's acting career is slow to take off. She's told she's too ethnic-looking for big roles. I was thinking, I'm just going to get spaghetti commercials for the rest of my life. And meanwhile, Chris is getting Actors Theatre of Louisville. I'm getting told by the same guy, eh, no one would ever believe you in this Southern role because you're too Italian-looking. So that was, you know, I was having meltdowns over that. I did have a great job. I was writing um, video copy for MGM. And I also had a comedy group that we had put together because if I wasn't going to get roles the normal way that Chris was, Chris could just walk in and be like, oh, you're a like white man who's like good looking and blah, blah, you know. I thought, well, then I'm going to get my own work. Chris's first major role was a lead role, one he got indirectly through Marianne's Connections. It was the 1987 film Mate One, written and directed by John Sayles. Right around this time, Marianne finds out she's pregnant. While pregnant, she does Errol Morris's film, The Thin Blue Line. Marianne and Chris are preparing for life as working parents. Then the baby comes, but 10 weeks early. So tell me about the weeks after labor. They said, Jesse's not going to live to the end of the week. It was terrifying. I had to scrub up to go and see him. He was tiny. He was on a ventilator. He was covered with tubes. It was, it was terrifying to see him like that. And uh, we were just traumatized, both of us. The bills were mounting. We did not have insurance. And then Chris got a job on the equalizer and our insurance kicked in. It was like 70 grand or something. We never could have afforded that. I remember it as just terror and amplified by my hysterical Italian family that was calling me, calmed by Chris's father, who was normal and Midwestern and a doctor. And, um, you know, just, we had no idea. Everything was a big mystery. We didn't know if he'd survive. We didn't know when we'd get to take him home. We didn't know anything. You know, meanwhile, we move into our Hoboken apartment with no baby, where they're like just fixing the place up, waiting for him, you know, when we're going to be able to take Jesse home. And when did, when did that happen? That happened uh, in December. So that was a month before he was due, we got to take him home. He was named after Chris's grandfather, Jesse Lanier. Lanier is, but if you're Texan, it's Jesse Lanier. <laughs> His people were Texan. So 
So Jesse, we thought Jesse Cooper was a good sounding name. Jesse defies those predictions from the doctors that said he wouldn't survive infancy. But Chris and Marianne are told their son might be blind, maybe deaf. They're told to have low expectations for his cognitive abilities. Turned out, none of that was true. He was physically severely disabled. He was nonverbal because, I know it sounds strange, but muscles control your mouth. So it was muscular. It wasn't cognitive. Months after he's born, a doctor they very much like diagnoses Jesse with cerebral palsy. When Jesse was four and doing a puzzle and he pointed to the octagon and he said, oct, eight, in front of the therapist, I almost fell to my knees thanking God because finally somebody had seen that this kid knew that an octagon had eight sides and he was four. It was prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself over and over again. And I lost all fear of ever auditioning again because I thought nothing is as scary as someone telling you your kid's not going to make it till the end. I, I totally didn't care. I, it, it really freed me artistically, I will tell you that. Marianne tries to work after Jesse is born, but she's also the primary caretaker for their son. Those first few years as a family are difficult, but Marianne is giddily in love with Jesse, she says. That happiness is balanced with a terror of... Will this kid be okay? This is also when Chris's career really goes to the next level. I was um, alone a lot, alone a lot. I mean, he had finished Mate One, but then he got Lonesome Dove and, uh, you know, he started working. How were the two of you communicating, you and Chris, about this kind of thing? And was it a strain? Was it a, you know... You know what? For the most part, he he was so beautiful with our son, that there is no way that I could resent him going away. Although every once in a while it would bubble up. They were redoing the kitchen. I was living downstairs like a gerbil. I was cooking. I I said to Chris, you know, I couldn't get him on the phone half the time and he did not have cell phone. This was, he didn't have, he was one of the last holdouts, believe me. He thought of it as an electronic jail bracelet. So half the time I'd have to be calling some you know, somebody in a hotel asking for my husband to be there and he wouldn't be there. And when I would finally get him, one time I I just, I was like, you know, God damn it, you're getting room service. I'm here. And he was like, I have been kissing Kevin Spacey for 14 hours straight. (laughs) It's like, what are you going to do but crack up, you know? (laughs) I think the senses of humor is what really saves us in many ways. One of the biggest fights we ever had was like over, oh, it was this big long thing over a neighbor and dogs. It's always dogs. But um, he defended the neighbor and I was furious. So I decided to make him dead to me for the day because, you know, the Italians are really good at mortame. Nobody's better. (laughs) So I decided to make him dead to me. And uh, I'm on the phone with my girlfriends. I'm like, and then he said, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, what an asshole. And, you know, this was going on all day. And then finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He's like, you're perky with everybody else, but not with me. And I said, and I'll tell you why. I did not expect you to fight a duel for me, but you could defend me when, you know, I and I said, it's like that scene in It's a Wonderful Light, you know, with that guy who says, you made my wife cry. I said, oh my God, I've been thinking of that scene all day. And then we both cracked up and we were like, we can't even fight without citing film. This is pathetic. <laughs> and then we, we just laughed. 
<laughs> because it was so ridiculous. When we come back, Marianne talks about the foundation she and Chris had built and how they would need that more than ever before. We're back. So Marianne and Chris continue to raise Jesse, balancing their parenting demands with creative work. Marianne says they were uniquely suited to communicate with their son. As two actors, they had all sorts of ways of using their bodies, their faces, to convey and understand meaning. But the world outside of their home brings new challenges. Jesse's schools want him isolated from other kids. Eventually, Marianne and Chris decide to move to Marianne's home state of Massachusetts. After doing their research, they believe the services and education system there will be better for their son. We were thrilled. We didn't think we'd get a mortgage, number one. What are people going to say? Oh, you're actors. You made money last year. Planning to make some this year? Don't know. So we were thrilled to even get a mortgage. And, you know, we find this little raised ranch that's on a tidal river. And we can't believe our luck that we're near the bay and we're, you know, Chris is putting frogs in Jesse's hand that he's finding outside. But school for Jesse doesn't work out the way they'd hoped. Once again, Marianne leads a battle for inclusion to make sure her kid isn't forgotten in the system. And it's like a full-time job to be an advocate for your kid at that point. Totally. We fought a two-year battle to get him his basic civil rights. And it was traumatic for both of us. We both lost weight. I bought a punching bag to keep from killing someone. It was really, really a tough... um, a tough time for us. My answer to Chris was, you go out and work and I'll stay here and kill them. That's literally what I said to him. (laughs) And that's so interesting because I think for a lot of couples, it's difficult to remain a team at that point, right? Because everybody's exhausted and there's only one other person to take it out on. How did the two of you sort of Well, we projected our, we projected all of our rage where it should have gone toward, you know, the horrible SPED director who was keeping us from our kid. And you know what I mean? We were a united front. He was my partner, you know, the whole time. He was really my partner. And uh, I was lucky in that way, I think. I think it's because also our temperaments are really complementary. I'm very talkative and excitable and easily angered. And he's very calm and introverted and shy. By the time Jesse is eight, Marianne gets him the education they wanted for him. She's won her many battles with the school system. Jesse has fantastic caregivers. At this point, he's thriving. And then um, we found him one morning dead. It was absolutely devastating. It was the end of our world. The cause of death, they're told, is sudden, unexplained death in epilepsy. Here's Marianne reading from her memoir, Jesse, A Mother's Story. Then the little boy that was a part of us was gone forever. In those first surreal days, we slept entwined again, but now it was to cling and scrabble and try in vain for comfort. This was the threat that could destroy us, not the challenges we faced in the past, not the fears for Jesse's well-being we had in common or the battles we fought together against the school, not even the flashes of anger over too much time apart or who forgot to get the dog food. The threat to us 
was of grieving alone, each nursing a private agony, each blaming the other for not feeling exactly what the other was feeling at the same time or in the same way. The threat of bursting apart like seed pods and falling to the ground in separate dried out halves now that Jesse was scattered to the wind and lost to us in life. And that was the biggest fear. Can you talk about how you would describe what grief looks like to you in that phase and what grief looks like to to Chris? He was able to deal better than I was. I remember when I was fading, just fading. I was like fading out of existence. I was disappearing. It was almost as if I was saying goodbye to the world. And I remember my, my good friend saying to me, but what about Chris? And I thought about that. And I thought, I'm in too much pain. I'm just in too much pain. I, if I die, I, I die. Was Chris w- working at the time? Like, was he able to just be home with you and so that you could be together? He was working. He was working. He had two jobs, and I was getting sicker and sicker. But I didn't realize it. I just thought it was malaise from grief. And finally, Chris was like, you need to see a doctor. There, there's something going on here. As it turns out, during this time, Marianne had grown a tumor, one that was the size of Jesse at his birth. The doctors don't even know where it started. It's when she gets it surgically removed that she's told, you're going to live. And then she thinks, oh, well, if that's the case, I better get it together. You know, if you read the statistics, and I actually really was Googling this the other day, and they're all over the map. People say this many couples split up because of a loss of a child. This many, you know, and it's, and then of course you don't know how many stay together, but very unhappily. I, like you, do not know if they mean anything because I, I read the same damn statistics about disability, about having a child with a disability, and I don't think it's true. Maybe I'm just, every couple I've met that have had children like ours have been have risen, have risen together and and come closer together. They've become a team. But maybe I'm just not seeing the ones where that didn't happen, you know? It seemed like it wasn't so much that the two of you had a moment after this loss and said, we can survive this by doing X, Y, and Z. It was all of these other experiences that... Right. There were these moments in your story from the early parts of your relationship where you sort of see each other for your differences, and love each other for those differences. And he's never going to be the person who looks at you and says, can you be less angry right. at that guy? So wh- <laughs> when, you know, what he loves that you're angry at that guy, right? Yes. This, so yes. when did that happen and how did you pull that off? I think that happened early, early on. That was just like, we're seeing each other and appreciating the different ways we react to things immediately. Otherwise, there's not an attraction, right? The the attraction is there. And then you run the hurdles. What's it going to be like with my friends? What's it going to be like with what we do for a living? What's it going to be like with our families? And you run every one of those hurdles and then, you know, you proceed from there. When I saw the way he was reacting, I understood because it was completely what his character had been all all along. You know, I just, I'm sorry that he, that I put him through like almost dying (laughs) because that he didn't need that on top of everything else. Marianne says they learned they didn't necessarily have to be in the same emotional place. They just had to have empathy for each other. That is the hardest lesson of all. That's the hardest lesson of all, that it's different for everybody. You know, he might be 
I might wake up of a morning, especially newly grieved, where I just don't feel like leaving my bed. I'm just going to stay in bed and cry today. And he might be feeling okay. You can't resent that person because he's up, you know, he's not feeling at exactly the same time that you are. Grief is like a sniper. It comes out when you don't expect it, right? It snipes at you. You might be driving home and you're hearing a song and all of a sudden that song triggers something. Marianne says that in the early difficult period after Jesse's death, Chris has his work to help him process. He pours emotion into his roles. Marianne eventually has that too. In one case, it's overwhelming. After we lost Jesse, I got a call from The Sopranos, which I had been doing. And they wanted, I said to Chris, I'm really worried that they're going to kill my television son. And they did. They did, right? So I had a scene where I had to go in front of his uh, dead body, Michael Imperioli, and fall on my knees and and give them a, a primal scream, right? That was amazing. I fainted. I actually fainted on set, and I, I came to with one of his, one of Tony's uh, crew, who was a cop, an ex-cop, saying, "Are you on meds?" And I saw this bright light, and I hear, "Are you on meds?" And I was like, uh, "No, no, I'm not on meds." And uh, and then they had a doctor. I'm sitting there with the doctor and. Jim, James Gandolfini, who is just such a sweetheart, you know, he comes over, he goes by, and he says, anything for attention. (laughs) What was the gap between, like, how long after did you have to play that scene? That was about two years later. Wow, that feels so raw at that point. Oh, it was... It was worse. You have this thing called looping where if you don't get the sound right, you have to go in afterwards and you have to match your voice with what you see on camera. And they called me in and I had done a scene before the scene, the primal scene, where I'm just weeping, weeping, weeping that my son is dead. And now they want me to say my only son over and over again. And of course, to go there, you have to go there, right? So... I, I went in and I did it. And I literally looked at the, te- the tech guy looked at me, had his mouth open and said, where did you study? At which point you could do nothing but laugh. In Little Women, Chris plays Mr. Lawrence, a man who's lost his child and develops a bond with Beth, one of the March sisters. There's this scene where he listens to Beth play the piano and he just sits down and cries I have to say that when I saw that movie in a theater last winter, I lost it. I kept thinking, this man has experienced this grief in real life. I couldn't imagine what it was like for him to perform that kind of loss. Marianne is clear, though. Art may be a place to put grief, but it doesn't close the wound. She wrote a book all about Jesse, which helped her process what had happened. But it's not like it sent the pain away. When I wrote this book, so many people said to me, it must have been cathartic writing the book, that I actually looked up, what is, you know, what is the root meaning of cathartic? And it's to purge. And I thought, I have not purged Jesse. I will never purge Jesse. Never. It's an endless well. It is an endless well to go to. There are so many listeners, specifically of our podcast, who are like in a prime age range of choosing a partner, a potential life partner for the first time, like they are saying, how do I know that we can get through these hurdles? What advice would you would you give people when they're thinking, could this person be a partner for life? 
Like respect that person the way you would respect your friends. There are things you wouldn't do with your friends if you want to keep them as friends. At least give them that basic respect. Sometimes familiarity breeds contempt and you get to, you know, you start treating that person like, I don't know, the little brother you bullied or whatever in my case. Um, you know, you have to be aware of that. What I really appreciated the most about Chris, and I was thinking about that last night. You know, here we are married 37 years and I make dinner sometimes and he's every night mostly I mean he he cooks too but he says he always says thank you that's really respectful and kind I did learn something because I'm a rageaholic that I had to immediately up front say stuff like you know when you do that that really pisses me off and do it before it becomes you're pissing me off you know like do it before and say, I don't like when you do that. Marianne also says humor is so important, at least in her marriage. Chris has made me laugh so hard that I've literally, he has made me laugh like nobody else has. And this is something I kind of cherish about Chris is that people think of him as like Mr. Grimm, like, oh, he's going to bark out orders at me from his CIA post. He makes me laugh every day. You know, that's really worth more than anything. It really is. You know, if you can have someone who makes you laugh like you're five, go for it. You know what my theory is, too, that it really helps if you have role models. You know what I mean? And my own dad that I worshipped died when I was 15. So I saw that my mother and father had a good relationship, you know, before he died. But my Aunt Ellie and Uncle Benny, who lived down here, those two were like, you know, they were, they were people on their first date, you know what I mean? And they'd been married 50 years. And uh, they were role models for me. They really were. Marianne and Chris still live in Massachusetts. A year ago, they were visiting a friend in Provincetown, and Marianne realized how close they were to the crow's nest, that motel on the Cape, where they went after they got married. I said to Crystal, let's stop. Let's just see if we can go look at it, see if it looks the same. So we walk into the crow's nest, and there's a big deck overlooking the bay. And there's this young couple there. And I say, um, would you take our picture? And they take our picture. And I say, you know, we were here on our honeymoon 36 years ago. And they say, we're on our honeymoon. And I was so touched by that because they weren't having a destination wedding. They were having a cheapo wedding like we had, you know. In lockdown, Marion and Chris took part in a pandemic film together. It's called Within. And it also stars Rebecca Hall, Emily Mortimer, Deborah Winger, Don Cheadle. Everybody filmed at home, and Marianne wrote her and Chris's scene. They've also adopted a new dog, one that's been abused and will need a lot of love. Marianne always says it best, so I want to end with her reading her own words. This is a passage that I would put in a collage of beautiful marriage moments. Chris carefully hangs a huge picture in our newly renovated bedroom. It's a piece of early 19th century art that's been created since his mother sent it to us seven years ago when she sold the house where Chris had grown up. We had no room in our house to hang it until now, until this new bedroom appeared in place of Jessie's old room. A little girl with long dark hair looks directly at the viewer, unsmiling. She is dressed in black and holds a jump rope limply in her hand. She looks uncompromising and vulnerable as if her privileged life holds some secret sorrow. I say, hey, Chris, she looks like me. Yeah, and I've loved her all my life. He says it offhand, like, oh, I'm choking up. <laughs> like, shit. 
damn it. Like someone chewing a blade of grass. Before I can swoon, he adds helpfully, and she has your underbite. (laughs) I push him onto the bed, and we tumble over and over, laughing like children rolling down a hill. Sorry. No, I'm done. You got me too. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) It's lovely. Thank you so much for talking to us. Meredith, thank you so much for having me. Our love is young. It shines so bright. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Jenna Serbo do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. You can find Marianne's books, Jessie, A Mother's Story, and Ma Speaks Up, wherever books are sold. But she'd love you to buy them from Newtonville Books online. Love Letters is also an advice column. Send your questions about your own relationships to loveletters at boston.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or online at loveletters.show. I mean, there I am pregnant at the uh, opening, right, of Mate One. Bruce Springsteen is at the end of our aisle. I fell into his lap getting up to use the ladies' room. Chris accused me of doing it on purpose. I I was about to accuse you of doing it on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) But who wouldn't fall into his lap, right? I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. Our love is young, so there.